All right, so this is out of 1 Kings 19, verses 2 through 8. It says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if you do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow this time. And he was afraid, and arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him and he said to him, arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey ahead is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is the word of the Lord. In 1968, the Edwin Hawkins Singers, a gospel group from the Bay Area, decided to record a cover of the classic hymn, Oh Happy Day. Before that point, the song, originally written 200 years prior, 1755, was constantly sung in churches on Sunday morning as it was a well-known hymn. But after the Edwin Hawkins singers put their version to tape, they recorded their own cover of it, radio stations around the country began playing it on repeat. It sat on the top of the charts for a month and was one of the biggest hits of its time. The Edwin Hawkins singers had the opportunity to play the song in clubs, and in bars and on television and stages around the world because it became a mainstream hit. It was also a part of the soundtrack of a moment in history. Maybe some of you know the song from like Sister Act. That's a pretty popular version of the song, but still today the most popular version of the song that people listen to is this Edwin Hawkins singer's version. If you are acquainted with the moment in history that that song underscored, you might think that it was the worst fitting song to ever mark a moment. Let me give you an idea with, with this slideshow that we're about to play of the sort of things that would be in the minds, the imaginations, the newsreel of the people that were spinning this song on repeat and that were drawn to this song. I'm a, we're gonna do a slideshow and you're gonna hear the song and just, just take it in and try to get a glimpse, try to step into the shoes of the people that would be hearing this song.
I think that's enough. I think that's. I think that's sufficient to see the sort of contrast between that moment and the song, between this moment of, of what was supposed to be rejoicing, but was in the minds and imaginations of a people was, was not a rejoicing sort of time. I don't know that I'd use the word happy to describe the collective spirit of those days. The Vietnam War, civil rights movement, racial tensions, the resurgence of the KKK, the assassination of many leaders, but for some reason the song resonated with a generation of people, religious and non-religious or deconstructing, who had lived a decade of divisive and decisive moments in the history of this country, not to mention again the death and or killings of most voices of hope and leadership in that time. Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Fred Hampton, Medgar Evers, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, etc., Oh, happy day, cut through the noise, through the suffering, and touched a part of the soul. Why? Something about Jesus teaching a broken people how to watch, fight, and pray, washing away their sins. Something about it spoke to them, all of them. I think it might be saying something to us, too, this morning, as their moment is not unlike our own. And in the story of Elijah, we find him in a similar place, divisive, a time of decision for a nation. Like we touched on last week, Elijah stood before the people and said, how long will you waver between opinions? If you're going to worship Baal, worship Baal. But if you're going to worship Yahweh, worship Yahweh. Right, Moses? He asks this of the people of Israel. And then just as Kim read for us, it seems like he finds himself at his own crossroads. You see, in the, that moment, uh, we, we skipped a part. We skipped a pretty important part, but I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Last week, we talked about how Elijah met the 450 prophets of Baal on a mountain. And he said, this is a decisive, decisive moment for you all. If you're going to worship Yahweh, you're, worship Yahweh. If you're going to worship Baal, worship Baal. But let's see who's really God. We're going to pray, and whoever answers from heaven, whether it be Yahweh or Baal, that is the one true God. The, the 450 prophets uh, of Baal began worshiping in their way, cutting away at themselves as, a, as a, their twisted sort of sacrifice, sacrificial worship. And they pray and they pray and pray and Baal does not answer. And then Elijah prays a simple prayer and God answers with fire from heaven, a miracle, the first miracle in that, in that moment. And then he leaves, and, and, and a couple of years before this, Elijah had said, hey, it's not going to rain until I say so, so there's this drought in the land. People were upset with him. The king was upset with him. The prophets were upset with him, and he said, okay, now after this has happened, uh, we're going we're gonna to see some rain, and the people of Israel began to worship God. They, they say, oh, we're turning back to Yahweh. We're going to start worshiping Yahweh again. And then it starts to rain, just as he prophesied it would. Another miracle, uh, the other miracle being that uh, the people began worshiping Yahweh again. Miracle, miracle, miracle. And then he runs for his life. Terrified of Queen Jezebel. And then he asks Yahweh to take his life. What happened between all of those miracles, him seeing God move so clearly and this moment that Kim read for us. The Bible doesn't really psychoanalyze Elijah here other than to say that he was afraid, but, but there is context for a moment like this. Elijah is weary, and though he'd seen the power of God before, he knew of other prophets that he had been firmly acquainted with and, and had been firmly acquainted with Yahweh and still died. Other prophets that had seen miracles and done miracles, and still they experienced pain and suffering. Elijah knew that that God was that was he was good. He was confident that he was good, and that God answered prayers to reveal Himself. But he also knew that being devoted to Yahweh didn't mean never suffering. 
Elijah didn't want to live in his moment where the people of God were wavering, where the prophets of Baal were still out there, where there was still a queen named Jezebel who is hunting him down, where there was still a king named Ahab that didn't care whether he did evil of not or not. So he wearied of his pain, and the prayer he wanted God to answer was a prayer of escape, a prayer of, of death. And here's a side note for you. Here's a side note for you. Uh, the closeness to God closeness to God, even in this moment, it won't save you from the pains of this world. You can come here, you can go to community, you can read your Bible every day, you can experience the power of God, you can like get blown away by Paula and Amaris and, and like just like fall on your face and weep and still experience pain and suffering. But God is faithful to carry you through that pain. This is what we're going to talk about today. We'll see how in a second. In this moment that Elijah's in, God does not rebuke him. He does not correct him. He cares for him. He offers him strength for another day. He offers him the strength to press on and continue to live a life of worship, a devoted and prophetic life. Today, we're going to lean into this offering for ourselves. I believe the Spirit is offering us the same strength, the same sort of joy. We'll let this song, Oh Happy Day, be a guiding light into the teachings of Jesus. Like the song says, allow him to teach us how to watch, how to fight, and how to pray. Let's pray now. Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to your people today? Even this moment is our continued worship. There's, there's no separation between the song and our listening as forms of worship. It's all worship unto you. And so now we open our ears. Holy Spirit, come and open our ears to, to say what you would to your people as a collective and to us as individuals. Use me in this moment with all my own weaknesses, with all my own tensions and pains. I know and I've learned by reading this that you do care for me in so many subtle ways. Amen. Amen. So how do we, like the song says, watch. Watch for God. How do we walk through this life with its tensions, with its sufferings, in a way that is full of joyous worship? Now, how many of you guys, because of like everything I've said thus far, are like, yeah, joy. This is obviously what he's talking about this morning. No, it's a little, it's a little heavy, right? There's, there's a heaviness to all of these things, to the pain, to the sufferings, even looking back at the 1960s, and you think, okay, you know, our moment is kind of hard, too. We've been through pandemic, through racial tensions, through political and social divides, how do we begin to live above the noise while still in it? How do we live lives of worship that exemplify a presence of peace and deep care for a world set ablaze with internal and external divisions? So if you've got notepads, if you've got uh, iPhones with the note app, you all do. You should, you should be taking some notes, not because I'm going to say something that's going to blow your mind, but because every time we gather, I believe that the Spirit is speaking to you. The Spirit might say something to you this morning that like, doesn't even have anything to do with what I'm saying, so just pay attention. Open up your ears. We cannot walk blindly through this world, and our sight cannot simply be our own. Our sight is convoluted, corrupted, untouched by the Spirit of God. We are burdened with the contradictory standards of our society, we're shaped by the festering wounds of our families of origin and crippled by our own internal faults. In order to walk correctly through this life, to live lives that worship with the right spirit, we have to watch for the glimpses of heaven breaking through to the here and now. We must see with God's eyes. If you've got notes, write that up. See with God's eyes. This is... This is like a really difficult thing for us because most of us passively, passively believe that we are seeing with God's eyes. Like, what are you talking about? I do that every day. And in our minds, 
God agrees with us about the world. In our minds, God is like Democrat, or in our minds, God is Republican, or in our minds, God uh, really loves sports, or he hates sports, or he likes art, or he does not like art, or he, there's so many divides and things. And in our minds, usually we think that like God is a little bit like us, whether that vision be self-righteous or morally relaxed, progressive or conservative, cynical or blissfully ignorant, on and on, it seems like God often mirrors our own personal ideologies. This couldn't be farther from the truth about God's personhood. Like we said last week, if your God always agrees with you, it's possible, just possible, that the God you worship is not Yahweh. And this is not a condemnation. It's, it's perspective this morning. And perspective is what we need. How we see God is often how we see the world around us. So what is God like? This is the question you should be asking yourself. And how does God see the world? We tend to overemphasize the, the metaphysical because it kind of gives us a break from living like God would in real life. Oh, God is huge. He's divine. His out there-ness is like so present, his, his bigness, right? And we forget that Yahweh, yes, the God of gods, Lord of lords, three in one, is a person. That God is a person. And persons have personality, Dallas Willard says this about the personality and life of God. We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life. How many of you have thought that about God? Oh, God lives like a super interesting life. I think maybe when we think about God, we just think about this ethereal presence hovering somewhere out there in the heavens, doing nothing all day or kind of just existing. But God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. God is full of joy, and God has reason to be. Now, I hear some of you asking, as I did and sometimes still do, how can God be joyous when, just like you talked about, Shua, there's so much suffering, there's so much pain in this world? It's a very good, a very logical question. And in response, I'd ask you to think about yourself for a moment. And can you just, with me, just for a minute, go, me? Me? Can you, me? Can you do that? Me? <laughs> Y'all are weird. Um, if we, if we, if me, according to Scripture, made in God's image, mirroring his likeness can be dualistic, both and in our experience of suffering and happiness, isn't it possible that God is as well? Like, we experience both things, and often we experience them at the same time. Here's some examples. Have you ever eaten ice cream while you were crying? Good and bad. Have you ever laughed at a funeral? Have you ever found yourself laughing at a funeral? It sounds like kind of, but it's like, it's true. We sit there, we cry, and then we tell stories, and we laugh together at funerals. Have you ever cursed someone you love in one day and embraced them in reconciliation soon after? Have you ever been surrounded with the love of friends in a moment of internal frustration? Have you ever felt the San Diego sun on your skin while paying for gas in the year 2022? Pain and suffering and joy, right? We are broken and we are satiated again and again. This is life. These things are not mutually exclusive. Now with God, take that same feeling and multiply it by one billion. Listen, here's some things about God. Here's what God uh, dualistically experiences. God knew intimately the genius that invented the taco, right? Like... He knew that guy. He probably dropped the idea in his mind. That's an interesting life. 
He heard the sung prayers of the men and women that crafted the sound of blues, of jazz, of folk rock and rock and roll, and then hip hop, and like every genre that you love, he knew those people. He heard the sung prayers of those people. He sees the beauty of a thousand cathedrals and windows stained with the story of his people. He's been to every corner cafe in Paris, every good pizza joint in New York, every national park in every nation in the world. His God toes in the sand of every beach on every continent. He's heard every good joke ever told, the first words from every infant's mouth since forever, the sound of every applause from every glorious human accomplishment in history, and every note that Beyonce's ever sung, right? This is a good and interesting life. And he's not ignorant of the pain. He sees the children of a divorced generation. He sees forests dying by our neglect, seas on fire with our greed. He sees the epidemic of mental health issues. He hears the bombs falling in the east. He's seen the blood of a thousand wars in the skies and on earth. And even still, contrasted to that, he sees millions of families that flourish in covenant still. He sees the hands and hearts of those that will rise to care for the mentally burdened. He hears the sweet song of the attacked as they take shelter and hope and pray and believe. He sees the beauty of hundreds of other seas and forests teeming with life that he spoke into existence with a word. And even now he sees the reconciliation of it all stretching into eternity. Stars bow down. Time is his hands. The taste of every sweet and mundane moment on his tongue. The smiles of billions of sons and daughters stored in his heart. He is not worried for you in this moment. He is not worried for himself or his story in this moment. He is God. He is Yahweh. He is I am. So there is reason to cry, but hear me, there is reason to smile as well. God has reason to smile, though there be pain and suffering. God three in one is not bound to our momentary sentiment or feeling. Though he does see us, though he does empathize with us, it's not like we're bound to that. He's bound to that. On our darkest days, though we know he laments alongside us, it is no help at all to believe that God is a cynical God or that there is no joy in him. See with his eyes and you'll see the access to a joy that supersedes your circumstance, that invites each of us to worship. We're talking about living lives of worship, and that's kind of difficult if all you can see is the cynical, if all you can see is the pain. Uh, we do this thing in community. We talk about our highs and lows. We go like around a circle in our community group. If you're not in a community group, get plugged in. Talk to someone after, come talk to me, email the thing, whatever. But we go around in a circle and we call them constellations, desolations, highs, lows. One of our people likes to call them like rose and a bud and a thorn. Uh, she had bud in there. We're kind of like, that's, anyways, it's cool. Um, hi, Katie, listening on the podcast. Um, but I, I noticed the other day that we often spend more time when we're going around talking about our lows than our highs. We are just naturally given over to the difficult parts of our lives. Uh, my dog died, and my mom died, and my dad died, and I got no job. My job is dead. My boss died. Everything died. Death, death, death. And, and like, yes, right? If, if you're going through a painful moment, you need to be able to express that and get that out, and the people of God surround you with love and care. But then we get to the highs every week, every week. And we're like, yeah, I'm going on a trip. Next person. Uh, I had a good meal, I guess. I don't know. Next. And then, I mean, if somebody's like met a boy or something or a girl, then they're like, they'll really talk about, I met this guy. I met this girl. I'm head over heels. But that so seldom happens in our lives. And so we spend a lot of time talking about the, the, the things that are difficult. If you see with eyes, with God's eyes, you'll see access to a joy that supersedes circumstance, that invites us into a life of worship, and a life of worship that spends a little bit more time on the joyous things in life. 
Here's Willard again. Jesus, Jesus was and is a creative person. I think it's there. Jesus was and is a creative person, a joyous, creative person. He does not allow us to continue thinking of our Father who fills and overflows space as a morose and miserable monarch. He doesn't allow us. If you look at his actual life, he won't allow you to continue to believe that he's like a frustrated and petty parent or a policeman on the prowl. He's not out to get you. He's not just upset. When we become familiar with the Gospels and the life of Jesus, we become familiar with a God that challenges our cynical views. A person whose pace of life allows for attention and joy to beauty. In both humanity, in our own lives, and in nature. Jesus' life reveals about the Father an attention to detail and an obsession with the small glories of life on earth. This is the God that inspired the psalmist to pen chapter 139. You have searched me, Lord. That's actually not a note. Okay. You have searched me, Lord. Listen to me. This is Psalm 139. And you know me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going and my laying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before me, and you lay your hand, you rest your hand before on me, and you're super upset with me all the time. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that, actually. I was just saying if you're paying attention. God is obsessed with the details, the small glories of your life, and it brings him joy. Jesus was a person that paid attention. You might be thinking to yourself, well, if I had the sort of time that God has and on his hands and in his hands, uh, I'd be obsessed with people and birds and flowers or whatever too. We have a sort of chronological superiority about our day and a sometimes flowery, unrealistic view of the past or the life of Jesus or the disciples or Elijah or whatever. It's true that we live in a moment in history where we're driven to be fast-paced and pushed into modes of production more than ever before, but this doesn't mean that Jesus' day had any less pressure. That's a fallacy. He lived in the time of Roman military occupation, invasion, the spreading of leprosy and other diseases, multi-generational family dynamics, and stacked living quarters. Agricultural and craftsman work that took much more time than it does to send those three emails that you got to send tomorrow that you're like really worried about. Religious and social pressures that we couldn't even begin to imagine. The list goes on. And right in the middle of that, he gives an antidote to these pressures. Some might even say it's a command to obey and practice. Here's the scripture. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It, it, sounds, it sounds like poetic, yes, but I believe this, this portion of scripture is meant to be practical for your life today. Jesus is telling us to take in account to pay attention to the life around us, to the life and flourishing. This sort of accounting leads us to understand our own value in the eyes of God. Our own value to see ourselves as loved today. Now, try not to over-spiritualize this, right? 
When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, he does not mean only by prayer and the reading of scripture and church attendance, though he doesn't mean any less than this. He's outlining something specific. The attentive accounting of life as a practice of seeking the kingdom. If you can't see God's world in glimpses of the mundane, it's possible you are chasing some fantasy of your own making. You want to see fire from heaven, but even if you saw it, you'd probably run away and say, Lord, I weary of this world. We are no better than Elijah. We're no better than the people that God saw, that, 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 that saw God split the sea, go out into the desert and say, oh, we're hungry. And then he feeds them, right, manna from heaven. And then they go, they start complaining about it. We're no better than them. God wants you to pay attention and to continue to pay attention as a practice of seeking the kingdom. He wants, to see you, he wants you to see his presence and care for you everywhere, to live lives of worship in every moment in the mundane. This is, this is how we see with God's eyes. This is the first thing, to watch, like the song says, right? He taught me how to watch. And the next thing, to fight. This, this very thing that I just talked about, taking account of the life around us, is actually how we fight the pressures and pains of our days because it is an intentional battle against the things that are coming at us. All, all parts of our culture are yelling at you and saying, cynicism is a social currency. If you're not cynical, you're probably not educated, right? And so we are supposed to be a counterculture to that. And, and this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, turn off your phone and go for a walk. Breathe deep the breath that God gives to you. And while you walk, while you watch, pay attention to the life around you. See with God's eyes. We are, so we are so passively attuned to the things that seem like they are killing us. We are good at accounting for the death around us. That's actually, again, like I said, a sort of social currency in our day. Even in the church, you might better respect me or a teacher or a preacher who can clearly detail the problems of our cultural moment more so than those that seem to have too many answers, right? You go to a place and you'll say, like, uh, like all that guy talked about was like how God was good. And so uh, over it. I need to go to a church where they're like more smart and can tell me how bad the world is um, so I can go out and virtu virtue signal or whatever. You know, when they have too many solves and solutions, we, we seem to be like turned off by that. This is not the way of Jesus. This is the way of American, modern, Western people. Jesus is offering us a weapon against that crippling cynicism. A practice in fighting against the suffering. And more likely for us, a lot of it is just kind of inconvenience. Inconvenience. And another just side note really quickly. We read a lot of our inconvenience as, as, uh, as suffering, as pain. Not because like we're super ungrateful. and But it, it's true often that... Because we are so advanced, because food seems a given, because like getting somewhere seems a given for most of us, we translate other things in our lives as, as suffering. So, for example, some of you might not have what, what psychologists would call secure attachments with family members. And that reads as, I don't have what I need. This will go back like to... like. Your primal self, when, when we are babies and we don't have secure attachment with, with our mothers or fathers, it's like because they aren't feeding us, like literal food in our bodies. And then as we grow older, we become more complicated, more nuanced. It starts to look like if we don't have secure attachments, even though we're eating, it still feels like we're not eating. It still feels like we're not drinking good. It feels like we're not living the life that we're meant to. This is not a bad thing, I'm not saying that, but this is just like the life and thing that you experience when you feel those tensions in your life. And for someone else that is not eating well, they, it's almost like, yeah. Have you, have you ever met someone that's had a really hard life, but they don't really talk about the hard life? They talk about very simple things. They talk about like food a lot. They talk about just like eating or getting somewhere for the day. 
they don't they don't have time to like go over all of the they're like I don't got money for a therapist I just need to eat today and and a lot of the times this sort of uh, mental space that we're in as modern people who have access to the things we need and then our secure or unsecure attachments read as lack uh, we take for granted all the things that are simple in life. A grateful heart is neither overcome with nor ignorant of the pains of our lives. A, a practice in, in, in fighting suffering with gratitude will cause us to, to actually even sit above those, those unsecure, insecure attachments that we have. Because though those things might change, and today, if you have those in your life, if you have like stressed relationships or stress in your job, stress in your school, this summer isn't feeling like the best, at the end, we're gonna have two people right here, they're ready to pray for you. And they're not gonna judge you, and they're not gonna be like, well, Joshua just said that uh, it's just an inconvenience for you. Like, no, they're gonna pray for you and care for you this morning because those things, while they, you know, might be different than what other people experience as pain, need to be cared for, and the Spirit cares this morning. But we need to have hearts of gratitude, because that's a heart like God's. We need to be attentive and full of enough joy, and that's why you should get prayer today, to, to be full of enough joy to offer life to those in need. To offer life to those in need. If you have a sort of therapeutic life uh, a model where all you're looking for is peace in your own life, and if anyone interrupts that peace, you're like, you're out. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus would say, I have peace within me, and I'm going to go out into the anxious presence of the world and be a non-anxious presence. I'm going to meet people with love, with care, and with the sort of food that God offers for my soul. We, we are called to offer the vision of Jesus, the life abundant, to teach and exemplify the rhythms of a graceful God, to uplift the oppressed both, both physically and spiritually and mentally into this life, making a way for those, uh, for their wholeness and their dignity. And, and this leads us to just the last part, and I'm gonna try to move pretty quickly here because I wanna give time and space to pray and worship and for you to receive this morning, that sort of prayer that we need to become people like Jesus. Pray. This, was, this is what Yahweh is calling Elijah to in his moment of desperation. Out in the wilderness, alone, the last of his kind. Yes, he just witnessed the power and presence of God in consuming glory, in fire from heaven, in rain from the sky, and people turning back to God. And then, for some reason, again, he asks to, to die. The pressure becomes too much for him. He's seen so much pain. He's seen his, his friends, his fathers die. He says, I'm no better than them. Why do I get to live and they had to die. Why am I being chased down by Jezebel? You just called fire down from the sky, God. Do, uh, you know, do, do it to Jezebel or whatever. <laughs> but he just says, you know, I, you know, I don't even know if it'd be worth it. The people of Israel would probably turn right back. So take my life. This character, Elijah, like many in Scripture, is not meant to be idealized. He's meant to be a mirror for our own humanity and the way that God cares for us. Try and see this. There he is under the juniper tree. All he can see is death around him, right? Maybe Elijah's vision in this moment is a little skewed. You're like, if there's so much pain around him, but he also saw the glory of God, like what is he paying attention to? It's not that God didn't show up. Because there's, there's the truth of God showing up. But what is he leaning into? He's leaning into the death. He's accounting only for the death around him and not for the life. And, and he sees the death around him and before him in the shape of a vengeful Jezebel. God's answer to Elijah's distress is what we'll call a mundane miracle. And if you're paying attention as you're reading scripture, you'll recognize it's one of the most consistent and prevalent works of God for a prayer for people. 
How do we access this sort of miracle? Jesus answers us simply this morning, the same way that he answered Elijah. Check this out. This is a paraphrase of Matthew 6. This then is how we should pray. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. A future-oriented people is what we are. We're always looking to tomorrow, to what will happen next, to the next job, to the next place we might be moving to, to the, to the next uh, status in our schooling. We're going to get our, we're gonna get our AA, and then we're going to get our, our bachelor's, and then we're going to get our master's, and then we're going to get our doctorate, and then, and then i got to get married, and then i got to have kids, and i got to have another kid, and then i got to find a church, and maybe I'll start serving at the church, and then, you know, who knows, maybe I'll um, move up, and I'll become a, you know, very, like, spiritual person. I'll lead a community, all these things. It's always the next step that we're looking for, and we start to miss Right now, we start to miss today. Yahweh doesn't show up in smoke and fire for Elijah. He rests his hand upon Elijah. He gives him bread. He gives him water. Side note, again, like I said, I used to not drink water. Did I say this? Or did I say this during prayer? I actually said this during prayer this morning. It wasn't, by the way, if you want to just come and like get blasted by the Spirit, come to prayer in the morning, 9.15. It's beautiful. We got a like devoted little group of people. If you want to pray for this community, pray for this church together before we get started and for all the people that are in, 9.15, prayer. It would be cool if like this many people were here from prayer and we just kept on going till 12. And then we'd really need brunch. But I, I was saying, uh, I used to not drink water a lot because, I, I don't know, it just, it just the way it was, I, just, I was 20 or whatever. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I would move through life, and then I consistently wondered. I didn't eat well either. I still don't eat very good. I'm trying my best. I got a lot going on, and so my wife is like, eat, eat, eat. Uh, drink water, drink water, drink water. Uh, that's not food. That's ice cream, Shua, and I'm crying. Um, <laughs> Uh, I learned something simple, simple thing, and I, I would go to my therapist, and I'd be like, I'm so sad. And then one day, he just like, how much water do you drink? And I was like, what? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Don't even worry about that. Uh, and then he was like, you should go, uh, like, get a little, what is it, Nalgene? Just get a Nalgene and drink two of those a day. And I was like, that's not even going to work. Um, you don't know anything. But you have just a doctorate? Pfft, whatever. Um, and then I did it. And it was like God was watering my soul. Right? Like I was missing something very simple and practical. And like when I started drinking water, I don't know, for some reason, heaven opened up and God started speaking to me again. Some of you need to like drink some water. Some of you need to uh, go to bed before 11 p.m. Uh, one of my favorite memes, like, I just, I love a meme. I love a meme. I should have brought it with me here today, but, but it's a picture of Jesus on one side and then this, like, really sad person on the other side, and, and the guy's like, oh, God, stop giving me your most difficult battles, and Jesus just says, LOL, go to sleep before 11 p.m. <laughs> like, you go to bed at 3 a.m., and then you're like, why am I so sad? Why is my life difficult? This is, and sorry, so this is a side note, right? But there is like a sort of watering for your soul. There is rest for your soul, but you have to actually drink water and actually rest and actually like lean into that. Anyways, so, so what happens, what happens when we become too weary for the journey? One, drink water. But let's say we've learned this lesson about walking above the noise, about paying attention to the, to the birds and where we've slowed down our pace of life enough to pay attention Let's say we've learned this lesson, fighting, pushing back against the darkness, and then we, we grow weary from doing it all the time. What then? We pray for a touch of the Spirit, like I said, by bread and by water. When we pray this, with this sort of intent, something kind of magical happens. We begin to see the miracle of every other moment as the presence of 
God. A mistake, another, I'm just gonna keep on laying my mistakes out there as lessons for you. Another mistake I would make early on in my Christianity, I saw God move in ways like I, I did experience even heavier depression, suicidal ideation, sort of like Elijah here. And I was like, I just don't know what to do with my life. And then God like broke through in my life, gave me purpose. I literally didn't, when I was like about 13 years old, I didn't sing. I, if you don't know, I'm, I'm a worship pastor, so sometimes I sing songs. And uh, I didn't sing. I didn't feel like I had any real skills. And then, boom, here's a little angel boy voice for you and here's some purpose and a tent and like go out there and love people well and sing some songs or whatever it sounds like I'm bragging and it's because I am that's so that yeah boo yeah thank you brother-in-law is booing me and I deserve it I deserve it this morning uh, but, but here's the thing. No, God really gave me purpose and intent, and I've come to, come to a place where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to use this for him. And it was just like this moment of, of the Spirit pouring out his, his life and love on me. I felt cared for. And then after some time, I was like, when is that going to happen again? Where'd God go? I, whoa, I'm not seeing visions anymore. Like, I've tried to, like, pray for someone and get a prophetic word, and I just started thinking about Ice cream again. Um, nothing. I got nothing. I lost sight of, of the miracle, or I didn't even know at the time, because oftentimes when you just get saved, you look for like these big moments to happen again and again and again. And when you're weary of that, you go into a time that a lot of uh, theologians call like a desolation where God empties you of these big moments, these, these huge, like, God pouring through the heavens moments, and you don't get to see them anymore because he wants you to see him in everything, in every moment. This is a mundane miracle. I know and hope that, that not too many of you worry or even give careful thought to what you will eat tomorrow or today. Even our college students are sure, like, a cheap meal is on its way, right? You're like, oh, I'll get some ramen, whatever. I'll be fine. We see provision and sustenance oftentimes as a given. Like, of course, we're going to eat brunch at Fernside, or as Jared over here calls it, Fern Gully, after church. Why does he call it that? I have no idea. Jared and Allie, ladies and gentlemen, they just, like, make up the coolest names for things. I think they should change the sign outside. So it's hard to see it as the answer to prayer. Jared is beat red. We often... Thank you for doing the slides, by the way. You're amazing. We often, see, uh, we often attribute provision to the work of our own hands, what we've done, our own efforts, more so than the faithfulness of God. So it's hard to like go to Fernside after, and as you take a bite of that waffle fry that'll change your life, to actually say, like, thank you, God. Like, you've taken care of me. You've provided for me in this simple thing. You're waiting for God to send fire from heaven, and then you're eating, like, in one of the best restaurants in the city, and you're like, ah, this couldn't be God. Like, that is fire from heaven. The provision on your life, the fact that you've got, like, some Jordans on that are, like, super nice or whatever, and, and for different people, this looks different. You guys are all really stylish this morning as well. I'm not saying that that's all that God's provision is. It's not just affluence or whatever, but there are people all around the world that take even the smallest thing, even the smallest moment, even the smallest provision as God sending fire from heaven, a mundane miracle to bless their lives. It's hard for us to see, and I realized it. Um, we're almost done here. I, I sat down with a, when I was, I think I was 21, and I, I had a, I had like a, a record deal. And uh, it was not the coolest thing. Um, it was one of those ones that was like, um, uh, but, but I was desperately trying to just get things going and have conversations with people and write songs. And my dad, he was like, hey, I have this friend from the Congo. You should write a song about his life because it's the most interesting thing ever. And he sat down with me and he told me about his life. And I was like, how are you alive, one? And then why are you smiling? He's like, oh, yeah. Um, my whole family died. Um, I ran from uh, the LRA, and yeah, I, then I came here, and, but even while I was there, God provided for me, and he's amazing, and even sitting here with you, it's like, so good, and I was just like, what? Are you kidding me? 
And then, and then like, he would be really slow, like, in everything he would do. I'd be like, so, like, what, uh, what, what, tell me about your life, and tell me some of the hard things, some of the good things, and he'd just sit there, and then he'd look at the cup of water, and he'd sm- look at me, and he'd stop, and he'd smile, and then he'd take, like, so long to drink this cup of water, like, just, Let me tell you. And then, and that's, and it would, and he took so long to appreciate every little thing because he came from a context in which every little thing mattered. We, as a people of God, should be a people where every little thing matters, where we can see the mundane miracles all around us in everyday life. Right, Moses? Like, like, like my son, where he's just like, he, he'll, you know, a piece of chicken is like, Oh, like it's amazing. It's incredible. Whatever it is, I'll go to take him to the zoo and he'll just like lose his mind because a camel is, exists or whatever. It's like we should be like that. We should be like a people that see God in every moment. This is the way we, we watch. This is the way we fight. This is the way we are pr- to pray into our days. When we pray, give us our daily bread like it should mean literal bread. And that bread, if we are paying attention, will always feed our souls. That water, if we're paying attention, will always feed our souls. And if you don't practice this in prayer, in gratitude, the songs we sing, the gathering of believers here this moment, the time of communion that we're about to enter into, it starts to lose its taste. Every moment starts to lose its taste because we're like, eh, I'll probably eat again tomorrow. Does it really matter that much? We'll be like Elijah. <sighs> you know, God, you sent fire from heaven, but I'm tired. You'll probably move through someone else. Uh, it doesn't matter that much. And then God comes from heaven, and he doesn't say, hey, it's going to be all right. Let me tell you what's coming next. Let me give you all the answers. Let me fill your soul and be like, say, Elijah, rise up now because I'm here with you, and I'll always be with you, and everything's going to turn out for the better. All he says is, arise and eat. I think for some of us this morning, the Lord is saying, arise and eat.